Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and I am so excited to have my friend Glenn Martin joining us today. Glenn spent seven years in incarceration. Since his release, Glenn has been behind some massive criminal justice reform initiatives that have really moved the dial. I want to list just a few of them for you. He's the founder and former president of Just Leadership USA, an organization with the mission of having the correctional population in America by 2030. He founded the successful Close Rikers campaign. He co-founded the Education from the Inside Out Coalition, which is a national campaign working to remove barriers to higher education facing students in prison and once they are released. Currently, Glenn is the president and founder of Gem Trainers, a social justice consultancy firm. In this episode, we talk about a number of the ways in which returning citizens are set up for failure and also learn more about the fines, fees, and restitution that they're saddled with upon release. I found it to be a fascinating conversation as I always do speaking to Glenn, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell, one of Canada's largest business law firms. I'm excited to tell you about an incredible initiative at Castles that I have loved watching come to life. Castles understands the funding challenges that small businesses face and is particularly aware of the systemic challenges faced by Black business owners. As a firm, Castles also believes that when small businesses thrive, so do their communities. In response, Castles launched an annual Black-owned small business grant in the summer of 2020. The grant itself has been funded entirely from individual support across the firm, reflecting a broad commitment by firm members to address the impact of systemic racism. Castles has also matched every grant dollar with pro bono legal services to ensure that the recipients have the legal foundation to allow their businesses to thrive. For more information on this initiative, check out castles.com or on Twitter at castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Thank you so much, Glenn, for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is a great opportunity. Can we start by just talking a little bit about your childhood and your life prior to incarceration? Sure. You really did mean go back to the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but my uh, parents are from the Caribbean. Dad is white, mother is black. And so I lived the first nine years of my life in a small on a small island called Grenada in the West Indies. And it was a very interesting, you know, experience to grow up there. Uh, schooling was quite different. It was under the British rule and British form of schooling. So things moved much more rapidly than here in the United States. And then ultimately came to the United States at the age of nine and landed in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, but not the bed people know today, which is very gentrified and a lot of trendy places and so on. Back then we called it bed do or die. Mm, and what was it like back then? Oh my gosh, it was tough. I mean, it was tough enough to be the child of an interracial uh, relationship, first of all. I mean, most of my uh, peers were Black American people in that neighborhood. Uh, they weren't used to having Caribbean folks in that neighborhood. So also I had the, the heavy accent that I had to try to get rid of as soon as possible because people made fun of me. You know, there were less less guns back then. I remember that. But people still got hurt, you know, a lot of knives, a lot of stabbings and so on. And then ultimately, it just led into the 80s and, and the 90s and just the increase in drug use and all the violence that came with it. And then what was happening in your life leading up to the time of your arrest? 
So I have an older brother, Sheldon, um, who really played the role of my dad. My dad didn't play much of a role in my life. He got into the military when he was uh, 16 and a half. So he graduated school early because, again, we started under a different form of schooling. So we graduated early. And so he went right into the military, literally just before the age of 17. And so that meant the one person in my life who played a father role, if you will, uh, was gone before I even turned 16. And so then I have a younger brother. So in some ways, my younger brother and I were both sort of left to fend for ourselves. Uh, my brother, when he went into the military, he was exposed to different countries, different people, different religions. You know, he just, it changed the trajectory of his life, but it really did leave Adam, my younger brother and myself to figure it out. And surprise, surprise, we both uh, ended up going to prison at different points. I now kind of want to fast forward over a bunch of years. And, you know, we know that you then were arrested in incarcerated and served a number of years, six years, six years. And now I want to take you to the days and weeks leading up to your release. So did you know in advance that you were coming up to that release date? I did only because uh, I went to a parole board the first time. So I had a chance to get out in three years. And I went to the parole board and I told them that I was taking college classes and I did all this vocational training and I stayed out of trouble. And you know, you couldn't tell me they weren't going to let me go home. I really was like model prisoner, if you will. And uh, the most they can give you is two years. And they gave me 18 months. So that was a huge blow. So I had to go off and serve another 18 months. Of course, when it was time to go back in 18 months, now I knew I was going home because, you know, they would have given me 24, right? Mm. Well, <laughs> they gave me 24 the second time. Uh, but luckily, if you will, uh, in New York State, you get something called a conditional release date. So even if the board keeps hitting you, there's just a date where if you stay out of trouble, you go home. So yes, I had a sense of when it was I was going to go home. And I'm sure you're going to ask me about what the preparation for that looks like. I mean, I'll hold off for your next question, but we'll, yeah. we'll, all, we'll all have a good laugh together. Well, you, you, you nailed it. So <laughs> why don't we dive in? <laughs> sure. It was, look, it wasn't for lack of effort on behalf of the other guys I was serving time with. I mean, my entire time in prison, I really was nurtured and invested in by the older guys, the guys who had been there a lot longer, 15, 20, 25 years. Those guys tend to make a heavy investment in the guys who they know are actually going home, especially since some of these guys will never go home. Um, so they were running a pre-release program which is great. I mean, I was like, oh, okay, now I get a chance to figure out what's going on in the world, what programs are available, what jobs are available, healthcare, housing, you name it, except why would I think people who've been in prison for 25 years have any sense of uh, the availability of those things? And so it ended up being a huge disappointment. I really thought I was getting prepared. The correctional facility thought that this was the way to prepare people to go home. But I'd say about 80%, 70% of the information was just total misinformation. And again, it wasn't for lack of goodwill. It was just these folks just were not the best position to understand what was available in the community. And I remember one concrete example, there was a rumor, at least now I know it was a rumor, that if you spend more than five years in prison, you can actually collect social security, that you're considered to be disabled because you've been out of the society for so long and you couldn't assimilate and all this other stuff. And that sounded great, like, okay, at least I'll have some space to find a job. And it was totally untrue. So uh, it was pretty jolting for all sorts of reasons coming out of prison after all those years. But adding to it that the plan, if you will, that I had put together 
wasn't worth the paper it was written on uh, just made it that much more difficult. Yeah, that must have been such a huge shock. It was. It was a kick in the butt, especially coming back to New York. I mean, where, <laughs> I mean, things like even sensory overload, like, you know, a lot of people don't remember when you're in prison or don't think about this. When you're in prison, you don't see certain colors, you don't see lights, you don't see traffic, you don't turn off a light switch, you don't answer a phone. So there's all that sort of stuff to relearn. And then on top of that, just visiting employers. I mean, by then I had earned a quality liberal arts degree, two-year liberal arts degree. So I really was better positioned than most people coming home from prison because college has been stripped away, was just recently brought back last year, actually. But it meant that uh, I kept visiting employers and they were making decisions based solely on the criminal record. I remember visiting about 40 to 50 employers in less than a month and just getting turned down over and over based solely on the type of conviction. Yeah. How did that feel? Uh, well, I tell you, you know, as a person of color, first of all, like it's not like I've ever never experienced racism, but having racism cloaked uh, under having a criminal record where it's just more acceptable in society, right? Like, I mean, I know, I, I kept thinking to myself, wow, like 95% of the facility I was in was people of color. So all of these people of color now coming home with this felony conviction are unable to find a job. And so there's like, you know, whether you intend it or not, like criminal record discrimination ends up being a surrogate for race-based discrimination. So I was familiar with what discrimination felt like. It just felt like it exacerbated those experiences. And now there was yet another big old uh, strike against me. Yeah. I'm getting kind of like this sense of just hopelessness almost, right? Like there's just all of these things stacked against you and how do you overcome it? Yeah, you know, people ask, why do people recidivate at such a high rate? Why do they go back to prison so quickly? Uh, in the United States, the numbers are upwards of 75% over a five-year period. I got to tell you, like, as, as a person who I consider myself reasonably intelligent, definitely motivated to do the right thing, uh, had a bit of resources around me, still had family, no addiction issues, um, I can't tell you how despondent I was. I remember the guy who actually ultimately helped me find a job, which I hope we can talk about, a reentry program. I just remember him being the one to come to my house every day and bang on my door and literally say, I'm just not going to let you slip. But, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say there were moments where I was just throwing my hands up and saying, you know what? Like, I did much better in the streets than I'm doing here trying to figure out how to get a job. And everything that I thought I had planned for in prison just seemed for naught uh, since I couldn't barely get my foot through the door. Yeah. And I do, I do actually want to talk about that program and this individual, but quickly first, I want to go back to something that you said that when you talked about the sort of sensory overload coming out, like if you can take me back to that day where like the doors open and you're walking out a free man, what was that sensory experience like for you? I remember it felt surreal. I, I remember it felt like this wasn't really going to happen. Like it's not real till it's real. And then finally, I remember walking out and I'm outside of the prison with no handcuffs on. <laughs> and your first instinct is like, I want to get away from all this as fast as possible, except you don't know where the heck you're going and you need to be dropped to the bus station. So they drop you to the bus station. You have a bus ticket. You have whatever little bit of money was left in your commissary account. And now you're literally just on a bus on your way back home. And that's it. That's the end of the support you get from the Department of Correction. And then, you know, for me, I'm coming back to a big city. So I land in Port Authority, Midtown Manhattan. I walk through the bus station and I had just never, you know, in the last five, six years, experienced 
so many people around me, like literally even the proximity was challenging. I remember feeling hugely anxious about other human beings being so physically close to me because in prison, you try to keep people, I mean, all the things that will allow you to survive in prison are the same things that will allow you to fail in society. And so in prison, you don't want people close to you. You don't want to express emotion. You don't want to ask for help, all those sorts of things. Um, and yet here you are back in society now and you need to figure it out. And I remember stepping out onto 42nd Street, which <laughs> Century Overload is an understatement. I mean, that's a place where even if you're from Kansas, you come to New York, you're like, what the hell? But I'm sure Kansas would have made me feel the same way, to be quite honest, because, you know, in prison, you see a couple of colors. You see gray, you see blue, you see green, and you really don't see reds and oranges and yellows and those sort of things. So I just remember having to close my eyes and try to recenter a few different times. I remember trying to cross the street and being scared and literally watching the people next to me to see exactly when they step out into the street. Because in prison, again, people don't remember this, but there's no cars going by. And so even a car going 40 miles an hour in society seems like it's going 100 miles an hour to you because it's just something you haven't experienced in a long time. And, you know, my, my, my time in prison was relatively short compared to some of the other guys who taught me how to use computers and taught me Russian literature and all these other things I learned while I was in prison. But six years was enough for me to feel totally uh, like an alien in my own community, city, state. I had to get on the train to go home. I remember not being able to understand because when I went in, we were using tokens to get on the subway. When I came out, we were using these magnetic uh, cards um, to get on the subway. And it's all in the wrist, except if you've never done it before, you're the guy blocking everyone else behind you and getting... And in New York, trust me, people, people are... Uh, not exactly shy about letting you know how they feel about you blocking their ability to get on the train. I felt like a tourist in my own city. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been that person, but as the tourist. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was really disconcerting. I remember getting home and locking the door, and you know, I was at my mom's house. I was lucky to have a place to stay, but I remember like having some serious fear about going back outside. Yeah, I can only imagine. You said something so profound that what allows you to survive in prison is what sets you up to fail in society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's different ways to get in trouble in prison, but some of them, I'm going to just give you an example of one. So if you look at a correction officer too long, there's a ticket called reckless eyeballing. Like literally you looked at me the wrong way. So I'm going to write a ticket and I'm going to punish you for looking at me the wrong way. Cause the idea is that you're looking at them in a menacing way well, guess what you end up learning to look at the ground all the time? Like, you know, reckless the time you- eyeballing. Yeah, reckless eyeballing. <laughs> and, uh, and so you end up learning this behavior of looking at the ground or even eating. I mean, you go into a mess hall in the prison and they're trying to feed 2,000 people in an hour and a half. Guess what? You eat in about a minute and a half. From the time you sit down, about a minute and a half, two minutes later, you better be done guess what? Like you come home and you have meals with people and you eat your food in a minute and a half. People look at you like you're out of your mind. So these are the things you have to unlearn. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. And it's not easy because also you have to keep in mind that you would think that the people you would unlearn it from would be other formerly incarcerated people who've sort of figured it out, except uh, the rules say you cannot be in relationship with anyone else who has a felony conviction while you're on parole supervision. So it's antithetical to the exact thing you would do. I mean, if you are a person who's experienced 
cancer and survive, then you probably want to be around other people who've had that experience. Um, but in this situation, you're actually deterred. In fact, you get in trouble. In fact, you can go back to prison just for uh, engaging with other people who have actually figured it out, who figured out how to navigate the system. And you were one of the lucky ones because you ended up being connected with a reentry program and with this person that you were telling us about. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that and how that helped you to get back on your feet? Sure. I remember, well, let me tell the crappy part of that story first before I tell the great part. I had a parole officer and I told him I was having a hard time finding a job. And he said, why? I said, well, first of all, I don't have any ID. That's the other thing. You come out of prison and they know who you are for six years, but then suddenly the minute you step out, no one knows who you are. So you step out with no identification. So, you know, good luck finding a job, period. But then good luck finding a job with no ID. And I remember him saying, oh, just get a passport because it's actually easier. You can have your mom write a letter that'll count towards the points. It'll just make it easier for you to get the ID. I remember the, the passport showed up at his office instead of my house. They literally sent it to the parole department. And he calls me in. And he's like, I got this letter saying you applied for a passport. I was like, uh, you told me to apply for a passport. He said, OK, let's keep that between us. Let's not tell my supervisor that. You should not have a passport. You're on parole. Let's forget that I told you. You take the hit. You tell my supervisor that you applied for it. And I'll cover for you. And we'll just move on. So that's how it started. <laughs> Uh, when I finally was able to get ID to look for a job, as I said, I just kept getting turned down uh, over and over. But then the parole officer, at one point, he rips this piece of paper off his wall and hands it to me. And he's like, I think this place can help you find a job. And I called the place up and the place had been closed down for two years already. This place called Wildcat Services. Go back to him a month later, told him that story. He rips another piece of paper off the wall and he hands it to me. And it's a place called South 40. doesn't even exist anymore. But uh there was a guy named George Lino who was running it. And I didn't know he was formerly incarcerated at the time. I did know he was a person of color who seemed to have made it, had a great job, and got really invested in me really quickly. And then after a short period of time, he told me, he told me a story of serving uh, over 10 years in prison and coming out and finding his passion and helping other people coming out uh, to find a job. And um, he started sending me on job interviews. He gave me train passes to be able to go. And whenever he heard me despondent, uh, depressed, uninterested, the man would come from Manhattan into Brooklyn early in the morning to pick me up, to take me to a job interview and sit in front of the building till the job interview was over. And he just kept saying, you know, failure is not an option. Like you're going to get a job. And finally he got me a job and it was just an amazing, it was the beginning of a journey. I didn't realize that I'd be on but I will say this, I came out of prison owing $83,000 in fines, fees, restitution, child support. And this job was paying $16,000 a year. I mean, granted, this was 20 years ago, but still, New York City, $16,000 a year. But uh, I took the job and, uh, you know, we could talk forever about the rest of it. But it really was because a formerly incarcerated person gave me the courage and the inspiration to keep going. Yeah. And I mean, it's that seems to be kind of the linchpin for most people, right, is having somebody in your corner who's able to support you through that that transition. One thing that you talked about that I actually just would love for you to explain, because when I found this out, I was completely floored. As you know, I'm Canadian and this part of it is a little bit different in Canada. Can you just talk about the fines, fees, restitution and explain? Because I don't think most people are aware that this exists. Yeah, thanks for the question. 
Um, I guess I've sort of worked in this space so long, I take for granted that people uh, get the system sometimes. So, you know, in the United States, uh, 70 million, there are 70 million records on file, criminal records. So easily half of that, I think that's being conservative. So 35 million people in the United States have some sort of criminal conviction, assuming that some of those people have multiple convictions on file. So we've sort of gone way overboard in this experiment of mass incarceration. And it means that we also have a criminal justice system that is extremely expensive, $11 billion a year we spend to run our courts, our prisons, our jails, and everything else associated with our criminal justice system, parole, probation, you name it. And uh, about 20 years ago or so, maybe 25 years ago, state legislatures decided that the way to pay for that out of control system was on the backs of the people who were serving time. And the majority of them were like me. I mean, I grew up on public assistance. I wasn't sitting on a bunch of money somewhere. I mean, most people engage in criminal behavior because of socioeconomic needs. And uh, the way they decided to handle it was to apply mandatory fines and fees and restitution to people who were convicted. In fact, in some cases, you don't even have to be convicted to face some of these fines and fees. And so these fines and fees accumulate while you're in prison. I think I earned 21 cents an hour working in the college program. And that was one of the better jobs in the facility. So you imagine trying to pay back uh, this sort of money and the cost of items in the commissary are similar to any grocery store. So just do the math. It's, it's virtually impossible. And not only do you end up owing what the court imposes upon you, and not only is it increasingly not waivable, it used to be waivable, some of these fees, but it accrues interest. And so it accrues interest while you're serving time, something you have no control over. And then the fourth thing I mentioned was also child support. Child support accrues while you're in prison, and often it accrues at the rate that it was set at before you got in. So if you were earning 30000 a year, 40000 a year, then you were paying child support commensurate with that income, but now you're suddenly making $0.21 cents a year. And so in the United States, up until a few years ago, uh, incarceration was defined by the courts as willful unemployment. So you got locked up, and that's willfully being willfully unemployed. So yeah, so me coming out with eighty-three grand worth of uh, fines, fees, restitution, child support was not not actually highly unusual. What was highly unusual is the fact that I was able to pay it off, to be quite honest, because most young people of color who don't, you know, people point to me as the exception. I, I feel as though uh, I was exposed to exceptional opportunities, and most people are not. Like me landing at a nonprofit public interest law firm as my first job, even though it was crappy pay, it did allow me to excel relatively quickly because I was surrounded by people who really got it, understood, and, and invested in me. And you know, I did my part, but most people don't have those opportunities. And I see people end up in what's called a debtor's prison, which is something that maybe folks do understand in Canada, which you know comes from many, many years ago in Europe, where uh, a way to punish a person was to, through civil death, you know, to, to put them in a position where they essentially could not operate in civil society because they were so burdened with uh, debt and then translating that debt into free labor. And so, you know, our criminal justice system in America is rooted in our system of slavery and Jim Crow and other systems of oppression that existed before it. So no one should be surprised that there are vestiges of those systems uh, still at play in our criminal justice system.
Yeah. And, and just incredibly, I mean, with every additional layer, you can just see how the chips are totally stacked against anyone coming out and actually succeeding. Yeah. You know, I'll never forget meeting with a senator at the time, Jeff Sessions, who ended up being our uh, attorney general here in the United States. And I was doing some advocacy work. I was trying to get college back in prisons because I was one of the lucky ones that benefited from a very small, privately funded college program. But just before I got there, Pell Grants were available, which were these grants for uh, students who just couldn't afford to go to school. So college was systemic in the system. And people who went to college and earned bachelor's and master's degrees essentially never came back. They just never returned to prison. So I was walking the halls of Congress and I went to his office and I was trying to make the case for reinstating Pell Grant eligibility for incarcerated students because it was taken away as a way to be tough on crime, although I would argue it was tough on victims because, again, it was one intervention that already existed that proved to keep people out of prison and out of trouble. And he listened to the whole spiel and I felt like I didn't really have him. And then I just said to him, I said, I benefited from college and prison. And I remember him saying, wow, really? And I just saw him have this moment where he was like, I wouldn't have believed that if you didn't tell me, like, I can't even imagine. And yet the way he summed up his statement was to say, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of money just because one blind hog found an acorn. And what he was pointing to was what he saw as my exceptionalism. And so I do say it out loud quite often that I was lucky to have had the chance to go to college. But I don't think, you know, I think that that literally defines the entire problem that we have with the way we think about our criminal justice system. The fact that one person does make it every once in a while, you know, is such a poor statement on who we are as a country and who we are as a, as a world in terms of how we think about punishment and the ability for people to restore themselves and to return to society. So, yeah, so, you know, I say all that to say that uh, I wish we would just be doing more of what works and less of what doesn't, because we do have some evidence about the things that work. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And while I, I know, like you see a million problems with the justice system as it currently exists, and I, I feel like justice in quotations, because we know that's not really what it is. With the system as it stands, I think what I'm trying to accomplish here is to say, okay, what are things that, you know, everyday people can do to make a difference? What are shifts that we need to see in society while the system exists as it does that would help set formerly incarcerated people up for success to be able to get back on their feet, to be able to thrive post-release? And so is there anything that comes to mind? Sure, sure. I appreciate the question. You know, we didn't get to the part of my story of sort of where I am now. I own, founded, run two businesses, one consulting business and one real estate business. I live in a great condo building in New York City and probably earn more than 90% of the people in the building that I live in. And I bring up that part of the story because I'm going to go backwards now for a second. I'm going to go backwards to where a correction counselor said to me during my first year in prison, he looked at my test scores from my uh, GED, which is like our high school equivalency, and he said, wow, your grades are amazing. You should go to college. And at the time, I thought, I thought it was a joke. Um, you know, here I am in prison about to serve a few more years 
at one of the lowest points in my life. And here's this person who didn't have to say anything to me, taking a moment out to say, uh, you should go to college and essentially seeing something in me that I didn't even see in myself in the moment and saying something that no one had ever said to me before. And I bring that up because when people hear about our criminal justice system, whether it's here in the US or uh, in Canada or elsewhere, uh, in some ways, the better job you do of defining the problems with the system is the more it feels daunting and impossible for people to change and have impact, especially if you know, you're not essentially in reform work and people think it means you need to stand on the steps of City Hall and so on. I tell that story to remind people that that correction counselor planted a seed that grew into a tree that cast shade that even he or she, you know, is not going to experience and maybe never see. So like literally there are things that people can say to young people in particular that can be life-changing. I mean, here I am 25 years later telling you this story and, you know, I could, I could walk past this correction counselor in the street right now and not remember uh, him, but it had huge impact. And so people can do that. They can, first of all, invest in people, particularly young people, but also older folks who may not even see something in themselves, but may be heartened and inspired by someone who's doing better than them, telling them that they have huge potential. The other thing I would say is, you know, we got here because we spent a lot of time dehumanizing the people who end up in our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you did wrong, right or wrong, in my experience, that is the human condition to get it right and to get it wrong. And we all go in and out of it to differing degrees throughout our lives. But uh, that should not translate into people being defined as less than human, because as soon as we define people as less than human, then we can do just about anything. And we see what we have done. We have warehoused people. We have decided they have no value. And yet, you know, here in the States, 95% of people who go to prison will come home at some point. And I think that that reality came home after our tough on crime era, when people really started to get to the end of their sentence and started coming home in huge numbers, which gave birth to reentry, to be honest. So I think the average person can also spend time learning more about people who've been in a criminal justice system, listening to them, and creating a safe space for people to tell their story. If you think of movements where people are demonized and vilified, uh, it usually is because uh, some small handful of people find a safe space to come out the closet, if you will, and just tell their story. And that inspires people coming behind them to do the same, and then suddenly, uh, the average person who might have never been in, in a system like that just says, wait a minute, wow, I didn't know this number of people had been through the system. I didn't know the person who pours my coffee has been through the system, the person who works in my laundromat, the person who packs my grocery bags. And it just becomes more evident how many people have actually been through a system that really is not set up for true rehabilitation. And, and so humanizing, humanizing people who've been through the system is something the average person can do. And then there's the more concrete thing. Like, you know, if you really want to take a step forward, like if you are at a company, you can ask, what's our hiring practice here? You know, do we create a space for people to show evidence of rehabilitation? How long it's been since the, since the conviction, age at the time of the conviction? Like, are we talking to job seekers about those things and then allowing them to compete for the job like anyone else? Um, so they are like really concrete things that people can do around housing, education, voting, and employment. You know, some of the basic things that we all need to be able to be successful. You know, I tell people when people ask me, like, what is the secret to public safety? How do we get it right? I say, we know the answer. There are parts of every single city where 
crime is low, public safety is high, and it's really because there are more police officers on the streets, more parole officers, more probation officers. It's because there's more education, more housing, more employment, more access to health care. Those are the things that we need to connect people to. Those are the real things that are game changers around crime and, and public safety. Absolutely. Thank you. So just sort of quickly, because I think this is amazing and important for people to know that this exists, you founded an organization called Just Leadership, an organization that provides leadership training for formerly incarcerated individuals who have become community leaders. Is that sort of a good synopsis of what Just Leadership does? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the mission, the full mission statement is the goal of the organization is to cut the number of people under correctional supervision in half by 2030 by investing in the leadership of formerly incarcerated people to help us get there. And it all plays right back into some of the things I've already said about uh, folks who've been in the system being dehumanized. So I said to myself, if I'm the exception, then you know what? We need to change that. And if I've been exposed to exceptional opportunities, we need to change that. And so I essentially thought of many of the things that I was exposed to in my life that propel me, you know, beyond some of the challenges that people with criminal records have. And I packaged that into a year long leadership training that uh, invested in by the, you know, by the time I left about 600 other formerly incarcerated people from every single state in the United States. And uh, that created a community of formerly incarcerated people that did not exist before that. But more importantly, it humanized people who had been in the system, it gave them a leadership platform, and it positioned them in important organizations around the country to be able to inform the work, lead the work, and essentially turn what felt like a moment into a movement here in the United States. And, you know, half by 2030 was bold, but we actually have places in the country now, uh, I'm standing in one of them, New York, where we have reduced our prison population in some places by over 50%, in New York City and in New York State by over 35%. So, you know, people laughed at me in the beginning, but we actually have seen some of the outcomes that we projected we would see. And I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't magic for me. And it, you know, it wasn't brilliance to be quite honest. I, I just essentially said to myself, there's nothing new under the sun. There's been movements in the past that have taken people from the margins and moved them to the center. And that's when you actually see change, whether it's gay rights movement, women's rights movement, you name it. And I just replicated some of the things I saw in those movements. And uh, instead of having the very people we're talking about sort of on the fringes, you know, not being centered, um, I just wanted to undo that. And, and that was very helpful to change the dialogue. Incredible. And kind of coming back to really just investing in supporting people. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like seeing people as people and then investing in them as people. Yes. Yeah. And having an appetite for the fact that there is no silver bullet solution to keeping people out of prison. Like you just have to have an appetite for things going wrong because we're all human. Yeah. So the stigma that we were talking about earlier, the way that I kind of think about it is like almost like a name tag that is stuck on the front of you that you wear every day when you get out of prison that is not obviously something that you're wanting to lead with and yet it's sort of just there and follows you around and my question is if you could go back to your 30 year old self and re rewrite that name tag and have people see anything that you wanted them to see what would it say 
You know, it's interesting you asked me that because I spent way too many years uh, under the toxic shame of having a criminal record. Even when I started doing the work and was willing to get on panels and on stages and be out front talking about these issues, um, I remember because I worked at a public interest law firm, I was just as fine with people thinking I was a lawyer working there and not a formerly incarcerated person. So it took me a long time to even own it. It's because what I didn't realize is that the magic in life happens when you go through the storm. I didn't realize that the storm itself was where the magic is. And so no one wants to go to prison. No one wants to do time. But if you've done it, then you might as well own it and own all the lessons that come out of it and recognize that there'll be other storms in life, some larger, some smaller, but that even while you're in the midst of the storm, you may not be sure why you're going through it, but it's when you get to the other side that you have some sense of where the value is. And so if I had to talk to my 30-year-old self, I would say, that was a hell of a storm. I'm sorry you had to go through it, but there's going to be so many gems in the middle of that storm that's going to help you survive forthcoming storms, if you will, and recognize what's coming, what it is, how people are going to react, how people are going to behave, how you should show up. Yeah, I... (laughs) You know, it's too bad you can't package uh, wisdom and put it in a bottle and sell it to young people. You actually have to live it and go through it. And so I would I would help my 30-year-old self actually see the value in the struggle, something that took me uh, many, many more years to just own. And part of it was the stigma, you know, to be fair to myself. Uh, there was a huge stigma. I mean, it still is, but there was even much more of a stigma even 20 years ago. I mean, we ended up having President George Bush, one of our more conservative presidents, decide to say during the State of the Union address, arguably the most important speech of the year in this country. I remember it was 2006, and he said, uh, when the gates of our prisons open, people deserve a second chance. And that, that had never been uttered by a president in the past. And part of it was the large numbers of people who were coming home from the criminal justice system. So we had a reckoning to deal with. But uh, what it really did was open the door because he invited formerly incarcerated people to the White House for that speech. And suddenly I saw someone who looked like me standing at the White House, who went from a prison cell to standing at the White House. And at that point, I was committed to getting rid of the shame, to actually recognizing that it's going to take me a while to let it all go. And even till today, I still work through it. But that the more I could do it and have the courage to do it is the more people coming behind me would see themselves in me, the way I saw myself in that guy who was standing at the White House in 2006. Thank you. Last question for you. (laughs) Tell us quickly about the consulting work that you're doing now, what you're up to, and where can people find you? Sure. I appreciate that. Uh, So I started a company a few years ago called GEM Trainers, G-E-M Trainers, and it is a nonprofit consulting company. I work with people who are doing some of the most amazing work around the country and in other countries, and I help them to deal with all sorts of challenges, uh, sometimes crisis, but also opportunity, uh, fundraising, organizational development, leadership training, one-on-one individual coaching. Uh, I get to choose who I want to work with. I say, you know, people live their lives in seasons, and I also think they live their professional lives in seasons. So I feel like I'm sort of beyond the summer. I've spent the summer trying to shut down the largest jail in our country, the second largest jail in our country, and I was successful, but I don't have that energy anymore. And so I'm in my autumn, if you will, and it gives me a chance to work with other people, particularly young people who are in the 
summer of their professional lives and doing some really bold, amazing things, even more courageous than the stuff I did. And so I get a chance to invest in them. And then uh, about a year later, I started a company called Gem Real Estate. And I always say it's a, it's a love story gone bad and an entrepreneurship story gone well. I had a girlfriend at the time and I bought a second home in Georgia, which is a much more conservative part of the United States compared to New York City where I live. And part of it was deliberate to, to be able to have a place in a, in a city that just reminds me that everyone is not as progressive. But the other part was I had a girlfriend and wanted a second home. And uh, we broke up <laughs> uh, before I even closed on the apartment. And uh, I realized I had learned a lot about the real estate market just from wanting to buy that place and decided to keep investing. And that turned into a now today, uh, by the end of three weeks from now, I'll own 34 homes. And there's a value there of about $5 million plus. And that's a huge journey from poverty, public assistance to prison to uh, all the work I've been able to do with so many amazing people to now being in a position where I actually can contribute to the work philanthropically because I've earned enough money to be able to do so. Yeah, so people can find me, sorry, people can find me at uh, gemtrainers.com and email me there. And the place where people can mostly find me if you really want to get a sense of who I am because I don't really hold back is uh, Twitter, uh, at Glenn E. Martin, G-L-E-N-N-E-M-A-R-T-I-N. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here with us. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us. Join us next week as we welcome Kos Marte, founder of Conbody, to the field. We will talk about how growing up in poverty led to the hustle, the importance of mentorship through re-entry, and the impact of employment opportunities on recidivism. If you'd like to support the show, there are two things that will really help us out. First, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.